So let us hear then God's word, Psalm 115, verse 1. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory, because of your mercy, because of your truth. Why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? But our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. May the Lord give you increase more and more. You and your children may be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heaven, even the heavens, are the Lord's. But the earth he has given to the children of men. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of this, his holy word. Well, as we begin here today, uh, in verse 2, the unbelievers mock Israel and say, Where is your God? Stan just stood here before us and for several minutes led us in prayer to a God that we cannot see who doesn't speak to us, not audibly from heaven. We can't touch him. And so, in some ways, it's kind of strange and foolish what we do, isn't it? We come here and we say we believe in a God, but how do we know? Again, we can't see him or touch him. We can't talk to him. Not in the way that we talk to each other. Are these unbelieving nations right to mock us? Unbelievers do it even today. And they say that we're just a bunch of fools. But you know, even when we're at home, when we're praying to the Lord, how many times have you thought, is there anybody there listening? Just talking to the wall, right? Or maybe you're outside and the only thing that happens is the wind ruffles your hair or... The stars look down and there is silence. These are, you might say, very real questions for us. But as we see here in the psalm, there is this call to faith. Now last time we started the psalm and we start with this petition that Yahweh ought to glorify himself. And he does so and should do so because of his saving grace and his faithfulness to his promises. We don't deserve any glory for that, but God certainly does. And yet, as I've said already, the the unbelieving world mocks these ideas. How can a God do any of these things? You, You can't see him. You can't talk to him. But the initial response we saw to this in verse 3 is that God is in heaven and he can do whatever he wants. 
Yes, we cannot see. Yes, we cannot touch or hear and speak from the heavens or whatever. But he is there and he does whatever he pleases. All other gods, because we're all going to worship something. But all other gods, whether we're talking about some figurine or we're talking about a religion or a worldview, whether it's a belief system or some hope or help that we have invented um, to try to help us get through the day, okay? those things that we look to to, to base our identity upon and, and our significance, all these things in the end are useless. Because though we may be able to see them and even touch them or talk to them in certain ways, okay, they can't do anything. And so all who trust in them become like those things and end up in death and destruction. But there are blessings for those who trust in an unseen God who speaks to us in an ancient book and who saves us through a gruesome murder and helps us with weak and everyday people, even certain events. And then he guides us with rather vague promptings that are somewhat uncertain to us. It all seems quite foolish, does it not? And yet, this is our hope. This isn't a blind hope. This isn't a blind faith. This is trusting in the God who is there. The God who is real. Well, we come here to the heart of the psalm. And as you see here on your uh, handout, the various outlines, we'll look at verses 9 to 18 here tonight, or to this morning. And uh, if you look especially on the, the second page, you'll see the, the outline that is arranged chiastically. Right? You see the ABC and so forth. Verses 9 to 15 are right in the middle. This is, you might say, uh, the main thrust of the psalm. And so we will focus on that here uh, today. So if you uh, look then uh, at the translation, let's look at verses 9 to 11. Obviously, they go together. O Israel, trust in Yahweh. Note the U is singular there. Their help and their shield is he. O house of Aaron, now the U is plural. Trust in Yahweh. Their help and their shield is he. Those who are fearing Yahweh, trust in Yahweh. Their help and their shield is he. All right, obviously there's this call to trust. To trust in a God that we cannot see. But again, notice the opposite of verses 4 to 8. Now in all three of these verses, <clears throat> everything is the same except a few Changes, obviously, the, per, the people who are addressed, and then uh, the pronoun there with the command. It starts here with Israel, and so this likely is a reference to the whole nation. Note that you is singular, so referring to Israel as a whole in this way. And then in the second one, we see the house of Aaron. But even though house is singular, note that the command is plural. So all of you trust. So not just Aaron, not just house in this collective sense, but each uh, individual priests, each one of the religious leaders. And then in the third line, those who are fearing Yahweh, so here all of you are to trust in Yahweh. Now, uh, the question for this line is, uh, how does it fit with the previous two? Um, some people think it's referring to a different group, and so we have three different groups. So we have Israel as a whole, we have the religious leaders, and then we have 
those who fear. Now, some people say this is referring to what we see in the first century. In the time of Christ and the apostles, a God-fearer meant a Gentile who accepted Yahweh but had not been circumcised and does not do some of the laws of Moses. Um, that may be true, but it could be that the God-fearer actually is referring to the true believer, the remnant, you might say. So all of Israel is to trust, the religious leaders are to trust, but in particular, hey, those who really do believe. And so that's how some people will take it. Other people say that those who fear Yahweh really is referring to the first two, and so it's just another way of saying it. So there's some debate here. I lean toward the idea of the true believer and the remnant um, in my own understanding. Um, <clears throat> so the point here then is, our God deserves glory. The nations mock. <clears throat> Our God is in heaven. Their gods are just man-made. And so let's trust in the true and living God. All of us. That is where our hope lies. In the God who is real. And so the whole nation, okay, the religious leaders, and each one of us who truly believe, we must trust in Yahweh. We need to rely on him. We need to put our faith in him, have confidence in him. And obviously, this is something that we have to do with faith. Because we can't see him. If, if we're living by sight, we don't need the same kind of faith. But to put our faith in something that we cannot see or hear or touch takes this kind of trust. Okay? We need to trust that he is there. We need to trust that what we see in his word is true and relevant. This ancient book, okay, it, it takes faith. But again, it's not a blind faith, but it's faith in the living God. And so we are called here to trust. Okay. Now, last time you recall, I talked about the various kind of idols that we worship. And yes, some people worship an actual figure something that is made, like Baal or Buddha. But for most of us, okay, and most people, okay, they, they worship an idol that is in their mind, okay, something that they have set up that they put their trust in. But they can't do anything. That's what verses 4 to 8 are saying. They, they can't do a thing. And so put our trust in the one that can do something. Trust in the one who is actually real. Even though, once again, we can't see him, we can't touch him, we can't hear him speak from the heavens. Now, <clears throat> this threefold refrain then gives us another reason why we should trust in him. We saw in verse 1 that we should trust in him and have faith in him because of his covenant love and because of his truth. He has saved us. He has given us his word. He has given us his promises. This is reason why we can and should trust in him. In verse 3, we should trust in him because he's in heaven. He can do anything. Again, idols can't do a thing, but the true living God can. Well, now here in this threefold refrain, we are to trust him because he is our help and shield. Now, you notice how it's arranged here in the Hebrew. The, the pronoun he is actually at the end of the line. And see how that lines up with the, the, the first line in each one. So you trust in Yahweh, and now we end with he in all three of these. So it, it's uh, arranged in this way to emphasize the point uh, here for us. And so 
Once again, idols can't help, but God can. And so if you're having a job interview, trust in the Lord. Don't trust in your lucky socks. Now we chuckle, but many people do that. Right now, the you, you guys know that I enjoy sports, and, and so the Australian Open is happening in tennis. And, you know, some people, they won't step on the line. Hey, they'll, they'll do a certain routine before they hit the ball. That, that's what they're trusting in. They're not trusting in God. Hey, maybe you're trying to pay your bills. Just make it from month to month. A hundred Hail Marys are not going to do a thing. Because Mary can't help you. Maybe you're having relationship troubles. Maybe someone in your family or someone at work or whatever. Relying on Freud will probably add to your problems. There are some things in secular psychology that are helpful. But relying on the Lord in these things is where our true help comes from. Asking God to give you a peace and a clarity during your interview Relying on him to provide for your needs from day to day and month to month. Softening hearts in hard relationships. Relying on him in these ways, that's what brings success. And even if you don't get that job, you know that he's going to lead you to another one. Okay? We don't need to worry because what God promised. Jesus himself said there's no reason for us to worry. Seek first his kingdom and he will add all these things to you. <clears throat> and so... All of this then teaches us humility, it teaches us love, it teaches us uh, even in strained relationships to give and so on. And and, and God is using all these things in our lives. A God, again, we can't see, but a God that we can trust. But he is not just our help, he is also our shield, our protection. And so when we're threatened by the woke mob... Or when we're threatened by a boss who really could care less about you. Or we're threatened by a government that is just trying to take and to control. Or maybe you're threatened by a crazed thief or a drunk driver or a rabid dog or an unseen devil. Whatever it is. Whatever that threat is. That idol that we are tempted to trust in. We talked about insurance companies earlier. Okay. The doctor, maybe someone in our family, it's tempting to make those things our trust. And they can be helpful to some degree, but ultimately our trust is in the Lord. And so whether we escape unscathed or we're imprisoned or killed or whatever it is, Yahweh does as he pleases, verse 3. And because of who he is, as Stan prayed, and especially at the beginning of the prayer, there, because of the attributes of our God, we can trust him. He is trustworthy. Okay. But in the end, those things that we have invented do nothing. A reasoned argument, a legal system, guns, luck, rituals, you name it. They do nothing. Our ultimate hope is in our God. Our God who rules over everything, our God who has saved us from the judgment we deserve. And so, here is the call. This is the main thrust of the psalm. Let us trust in our God. Now, if you turn the page over, you'll see our next subsection. 
in verses 12 to 15, now notice we shift to the word for bless. Five times the word bless is used in verses 12 to 15, and we can assume another one in verse 14. Okay. And so verse 12 says, Yahweh has remembered us. He is blessing. He is blessing the house of Israel. He is blessing the house of Aaron. He is blessing those who are fearing Yahweh, as you bring in now verse 13. These are more reasons that we can trust our God because he blesses us. And if we do trust in him, it will lead to even more blessings, right? You see how it's fitting together. And so our Lord, our, our, the one who has entered into that covenant of grace on our behalf through Christ, he, the psalmist says, has remembered us. Idols don't remember anything. Even those idols that are humans, hey, they're not going to remember everything, certainly not the way God does. And remember, this term, remember, is such an important word for the covenant. And it does not mean that God has forgotten. That's not the point at all. The point is, he is now acting on the promises that he has made. And so the psalmist here, we don't know exactly what he has in mind. But it does suggest to us that Israel was suffering in some way. It's this threefold repetition, he is our help, he is our shield, they needed help. They needed protection. So possibly a nation had come against them. Maybe it's referring to their time in exile. Maybe it's referring to something else. We don't know. Okay. Maybe it was a famine. Maybe it was a plague. But whatever it was, God had remembered them. He had kept his promises to his people, even in the midst of this. And so he does not forget us, but he does help us. And so, uh, in this case, God had blessed them in some way. Again, maybe it was health, maybe it was the enemy was defeated, but whatever it was, he clearly did something to bless his people and to keep his promises. And so, as we think, back to some of the examples I gave before, we think about that issue of, of a job, or, or, or the bills and the money that we need, or the relationships, or maybe the burglar that's trying to break in, or some oppressive government or a wicked angel, whatever it is, God remembers us. He blesses us. Again, this God we cannot see or touch or hear, he blesses his people. He keeps his promises. Now note these four lines then. Obviously, they uh, correspond to verses 9 to 11. It starts just generally, he is blessing. And then you have the house of Aaron, or house of Israel, house of Aaron, and those who are fearing Yahweh, just like the other three uh, in, in uh, verses nine to eleven. Now, in regard to the verb here, this this verb is showing an action that has not yet come to an end. It's still happening in some way, or it will happen in the future. So, depending on your translation, some of you may have the future tense there. He will bless. Um, I would agree with those who say this ongoing idea fits the context, especially as we'll get to verse 15. And so it fits that idea better, which includes the future, right? And so we're not just waiting for some day for him to bless us. He's blessing us now. He's blessing us every day. And we all have experienced this. So whether we are part of the, the nation of Israel, or we might say the church in general, whether we are part of the religious leaders, or whether we're 
if you will, just a God-fearer, just the regular believer, whatever it is, God is blessing us. Now, God blesses all of them, but maybe in different ways. We make a distinction between what we call the visible church and the invisible church. There are people who are part of the covenant of grace, part of the church, receive outward blessings, but they're not going to go to heaven because they're not a true believer. They're not part of the remnant. They're not actually trusting in God. But they're receiving some of the blessings by being part of the church. There are some blessings in that way, but obviously there are much greater blessings for those who are the true believer. And so note, there can be some differences in that way. All right, now you might remember I've mentioned before that there are two key words for blessing in the scriptures in the Old Testament. And one of them emphasizes the happy emotion that comes from blessing. And so Psalm 1, for example, uh, uses that word. This is the other word. This is the word that is specifically tied to the covenant. So you think of blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience, right? And so this is that particular word. And uh, it's quite fitting. He has remembered us Right? This God of the covenant is going to act according to the covenant, and so he blesses us according to those covenant promises and so forth. And so here is uh, the emphasis. And so God has entered into this relationship with his people. God has kept the law on our behalf. His justice is upheld. Our relationship with him is restored. And all this is because of what Christ has done. For Israel, obviously, it's what he was going to do, but it's all because of Christ. And so God now can bless a sinful people. He can't just do it. His justice, his righteousness will not allow it. But because of the covenant, because of what he has done through Christ, he now can and does bless us, both temporally and eternally. So whatever the specific situation was here for Israel, whatever specific situation we may find ourselves in, Yahweh through Christ and by his spirit blesses us on a daily basis with temporal things and, of course, eternal blessings. And so because of this, let's trust him, right? He is trustworthy. Idols don't do any of these things. Now, notice how verse 13 ends. The small ones with the great ones. Yahweh doesn't just bless, if you will, the big people. Yahweh doesn't just bless the Brian Chapels and Irwin Inces and Palmer Robertsons and John MacArthur's and Al Mohler's and so forth. He also blesses the unknown, the insignificant to the world, the small people like us. Doesn't this elicit more trust and faith on our part? We don't have to wait for the crumbs of blessing to fall from the table of the prominent. God blesses us too. Remember Psalm 113? He comes down into the dust and dirt to lift us up. And we've all experienced this in one way or another, haven't we? And so God is trustworthy. All right, now in verse 14, we have more idea of blessing here, but the word is not used. We have uh, this, may Yahweh add upon you, upon you and upon your sons. Now, the way this is worded here is actually 
a blessing, or we might say a benediction. This is somewhat reminiscent of Aaron's blessing in number six, okay? but do you see the idea? There's this request for blessing, you could say, a prayer that God would not just bless us now, but also in the future. Okay? May Yahweh add to the blessings he's already given to us, and may he add them for the future generations. So then verse 15 says, you are being blessed by Yahweh, the one who made heavens and earth. Now, some of your translations may try to make verse 15 sound like verse 14 and make it another part of this, this prayer blessing. But the Hebrew is actually very straightforward here. It is emphasizing a continuous action, and there's no question. Hey, back in verse 12, there's a question. Not here. It's very straightforward. Okay. And so this is not another request for blessing. It is a statement that God is blessing. He is blessing. And of course, it's put here in the passive. You are being blessed by Yahweh. That's something that is happening. Are you aware of it? Many times we are not. But did you have breakfast today? Yeah, I'm smelling some good food here. Okay. Did you have Nice clothes to wear. Did you sleep out in the snow last night? God is blessing us on a regular basis. And many times we just miss it. We forget about it. But Yahweh is blessing. We are being blessed regularly. And certainly he will. And yet there is this prayer that it will continue. Now, how is this possible? Well, he has entered into relationship with his people, but also now, verse 15, the rest of the verse, the one who made heavens and earth. The God who is doing all this is the one who made all things. We're not talking about some lesser God here that is only blessing Israel. We're talking about the maker of everything. Remember verse 3, he's in heavens and he can do whatever he wants. And because of this, we know that he can and does help We know that he can and will protect. He will bless us and is blessing us temporally and eternally. And so when we ask for things, we ask in confidence. We may ask, as we read about in the catechism, we may ask and say, okay, Lord, if this is your will, but we can ask confidently because of who he is. And so hold on to these truths even though we can't see our God, even though some days when we're praying, it sounds like utter silence. Well, let's come then to the last part, verses 16 to 18. Verse 16, the heavens are heavens belonging to Yahweh, but the earth he gave to the sons of Adam. All right, obviously you see the word heavens there twice and your translations are going to do various things to try to smooth that out. I added the to be verb in there. The heavens are heavens belonging to Yahweh. Um, The idea here seems simply to be this, right? Verse three, God is in the heavens. That seems to be reiterated here. Uh, They belong to him. His throne is there. His house, as it were, is there. Uh, Maybe we could include the idea that that outer space, the heavens, sun, moon, and stars belong to him too. 
Then the next line says, but the earth he has given to the sons of Adam. And so we have been given earth to rule, to subdue, to steward. Now, God still owns it. We are vice regents. God is still present with us. He's not just out there in the heavens. He is with us. But again, unseen and untouchable and unheard, except for those few times in history and, of course, when Jesus came. Now, we could go down a, a important tangent here and talk about how we are to rule and subdue, that we should live wisely while on earth, trusting God, praising God, and not worshiping idols would be the main ideas. And we could talk about many of that, uh, of those ideas, and we have to some degree. But uh, just notice here the main point. The heavens belong to God. The earth belongs to us. And then verse 17 says, the ones who have died are not praising Yah, and not all who are going down of silence. All right, now first of all here in verse 17, I, I need to apologize. I, I realized too late uh, here, the bulletins were already printed, that I, I omitted um, saying some of about the, the things here about this verse. First of all, notice that these two lines are rhyming. This is parallelism. Okay, that's the first thing. And it's close enough that we probably would call it synonymous. The other thing that is happening here is there is chiasm. And um, your translations are going to try to smooth this out to, to make it clear. But, but notice how this goes together. See, the first part and the last part go together. The ones who have died go, goes with all who are going down of silence. See how that fits together. That part is rhyming. And then you have are not praising Yah. And that corresponds with simply the not at the beginning of the second line. And so there's the chiasm, right? Think of the X here. Um, but if we're to paraphrase this to make sure that we get the idea, okay, the ones who have died, who go down in silence, and their tongue doesn't work anymore because you have decayed and returned to dust, well, you're not going to praise Yahweh. And that's true of everyone. Right? That's the idea. Okay, so we, we've got to paraphrase this a little bit to get to the idea. Um, now, the question that we are faced here is, is, what is the author referring to? Is he talking about people who have died in war? Is he talking about people who have died of illness? Or is he talking about the regular events of old age? We don't know. And so we can apply it in each situation. But those who die go into the ground. Their tongues cease to work. They are silent. They do not praise Yahweh. So, First of all, let me say this. Okay? <clears throat> this is not a denial of the afterlife. Some people will take a verse like this in the Old Testament and say, see, the Old Testament doesn't talk about the afterlife. We can't learn about it until the New Testament. No, that's not, that's not what's going on. Okay? It's just simply saying, when we die, right, we don't speak anymore. Kind of like the idols. They don't speak. Notice this progression. Heaven where God is, earth, where we have been, and now, if you will, under the earth, where we go when we die. But notice how it ends, verse 18. But we, we will bless Yah from now and unto forever. You see the contrast, the but there. Know the emphasis, the we, we. Hey, this, 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 uh, you might say the God-fearer, right? The true believer will bless 
Yeah, now and forever. Do you see the hope of the, of the afterlife here? Verse 17 is not all that is said. We have verse 18. There is a foreverness where our tongues will work, where we will bless Yahweh. Okay. Now, we come to this word bless again, but it's used differently than what we saw earlier. The word there in verses 12 and following emphasizes that God is giving us something. He is blessing us. We need his blessing. But now we are giving blessing to God, and he doesn't need anything. He doesn't even need our praise. He deserves our praise, but he doesn't need it. But we give it nonetheless. And so when we bless him, really the idea is praising. And so there is something that is given, but again, recognize our God doesn't need it. Notice also how we have at the end of the first line of verse 17, the name Yah, the short form. Verse 18, bless Yah. And then we have hallelujah, three times here at the end of the verse, or the end of the psalm. Again, the the whole point of this psalm is to contrast the true living God with idols. And a call for us to trust in the true God and not something that he has made. And so here is Israel, okay, who sung this psalm after they celebrated the Passover. And you remember what happened after the Passover in Egypt. They came out and then they started grumbling and complaining. And eventually they built a golden calf. And they put their faith in something that they made. And now here, in the time after the exile, and especially once we come to Christ, they would sing this psalm after they celebrated God's covenant love and bringing them out of Egypt. And they're basically reminding themselves, do not make another golden calf. Worship the true God. Trust in him. And so as Jesus is going with his apostles out to the uh, mountain of olives there in the Garden of Gethsemane, they were singing this song. They were looking at the image of God, learning who he was, putting their faith in him. Now, at the moment, they're going to be scattered. But within a few short days, they would start to really believe. The call is the same for us. As I've said here this morning, you know, it just seems rather odd that we would worship something we cannot see. But that's the whole point. Because the true God cannot be reduced to a form, to an image that we make. The best that can happen is God coming in the person of Christ. But even that image, we are not to replicate and make because we cannot fully and accurately do so. Idolatry leads to sin. It leads to death. It leads to lack of hope. Our idols cannot help us, even though we can see them and touch them and maybe give them a hug and talk to them. Those idols do nothing. It is God, the true God, that is the one in whom we should trust. The one who helps, the one who protects. And so 
I'm going to pray here in a moment. But when you go home, either today or tomorrow, when you pray to God and you cannot see him, remember these words, for he is our only hope and trust, the only one that's effective. Well, as Israel sang this psalm after the Passover, we'll do that here after we celebrate the Lord's Supper in a few moments. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for uh, this uh, call to faith. We pray, Lord, that you would um, help us to see um, the things in which we trust. I'm sure every one of us here would say, yeah, we trust in God. But every one of us here also puts our trust and hope in something that you have made. Help us to see what those are, Lord, that we might get rid of them, at least get rid of our trust in them, that we might more faithfully and completely trust you. Our God, we know that someday we will see you face to face. We will be able to touch, we will be able to hear you audibly. But in the meantime, we ask that you would strengthen our faith, that you would encourage us, especially on those days where it just seems like all this is hogwash. But may we trust in you, Lord. Help us to do so. We praise you again that you are worthy of our trust. You're worthy of our faith because you Alone our God, you have made yourself known to us, you have, you have revealed yourself in your word, you have shown us your love through Christ, and even though this book is thousands of years old, it is so relevant for us today. So Lord, help us to live by faith in these ways, trusting in you in the day-to-day things, for your honor, and that you alone would receive the glory. We pray all this then in Jesus' name, amen.